Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. Are you alright? Get away! I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hello, Gazelle. Hello, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hello, Gazelle. Hello, and Jen. Hello, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> so, Halloween is just around the corner, and we wanted to take a moment to kind of remember the TV moments that really scared us. And I think, I think, I think this may be true for you guys, but at least for me and thinking back, those moments were from childhood, mostly, them, yeah. for the most because part. those are the ones that kind of stick with you yeah. and mm-hmm. scare you to your core. Um, I'll start, I can start it off. Sure. Okay. For, for, Please do. For me, it was an episode of Gilligan's Island where... <laughs> <laughs> That's not this, what I thought you'd leave with. <laughs> Gilligan is, uh, it's a dream sequence. I have a very hazy memory of it, but he is Dracula in this dream sequence. Good evening. I am the vampire, prince of evil, duke of darkness, king of terror, and other rotten things. I was about five years old when I saw it, and I think it's that feeling of seeing something that's so familiar and comforting, like Gilligan, who was like my friend, and seeing him all of a sudden be so different was just like something like something short circuited in my brain. And like after that, I could not walk upstairs alone at night for like a good couple of years just because wow. I was wow. terrified Gilligan the vampire was upstairs. Um, yeah. So that was, that's my embarrassing story. Uh, that that's probably my I can number totally one understand scary that. Well, you know, there was a show when, when I was a kid, it ran in syndication. It was, you know, from the sixties before my time, but lost in space. And that was a show that I, watch because it was science fiction, but there was something about it that was deeply, deeply frightening to me. And it wasn't until an adult, I was an adult that I figured out, which is Dr. Smith, who's always the person who's ultimately responsible for whatever trouble is happening in the episode. Like, he's the one who helped create a monster or turn a robot evil or unearth some ancient curse or whatever. Like, it's always Dr. Smith who does it. And it was the idea that this Basically, evil, chaotic, destructive person could be living amongst essentially a family scared me. And it got to the point where, like, you know, I just stopped watching the show. I didn't even watch it that long as a kid because Dr. Smith creeped me out. So, like, he really primally scared me. And I didn't even know why because it's like he's a regular character. Mm-hmm. But he's he's basically a villain, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was a big one. Yeah, in terms of things, when, when I was a kid, my kind of Gilligan's Island moment was watching um, Little House on the Prairie, oh. another show that you don't expect <laughs> really anything scary to happen. Uh, and there's a Halloween episode. It's from season three where Laura, just start, she, she believes that Nellie, who is like the, her adversarial Nellie. character, that her, that her dad is, has killed Nellie's mother. And she, she sees something happening that makes, gives her that impression. There's a scene... Um, where they actually show like him like cutting off Nellie's mother's head, or her, or Nellie's mother's head is like through. I his remember table. this. I feel like oh I remember god. this too. Oh and, my god! And yes. I, it freaked me out. Well, you know um, who else freaked me out was Nellie. Well, Nellie was also. <laughs> and so the thing about it was that like in my memory later, I don't know if I had a nightmare caused by the episode, but I remember seeing Nellie get 
decapitated. And so in my memory for a long time, that was what happened. But I think I just was getting confused um, because the whole thing was just disturbing. But like, what the hell, Little House on the Prairie? Like, there was just no no prep for that one coming. Um, Yeah, it's it's, it's when you're watching something that's supposed to be so innocent and it just comes out of nowhere. It's almost scarier than if you had sat down to watch a scary show. Exactly. Because you're not prepared for it. You're not prepared for it. No. Another moment that comes to mind... Like that is on Family Ma- Family Matters when they would bring out. I was always frightened of that show. <laughs> <laughs> well, when they would bring out Steve-O, which was Steve Urkel's yes. ventriloquist <laughs> dummy who would come to life. Yes. Hey, you! Hey, you! It sure is bone, but down the toilet, pal. I spent the last year hanging out in sewers, bobbing for rats. <laughs> what did you want? Oh, not much. Just your soul. <laughs> his voice and like his face, yes. it was just like, you're, you know, it's a sitcom. Everything's nice on it, but for the most part. And then this is very disturbing element enters that just should not be there. Yeah, it is, that is frightening. And, you know, there were actually a few episodes of the original Star Trek, which was airing in syndication when I was a kid, that scared me. And that's not a show that you normally think of as scary, but it was moments like you, like what you were talking about, what both of you were talking about, where um, characters who you know as being a particular way are suddenly not that way anymore. And they're malevolent, mm-hmm. like they're threatening in some way. Yeah. But then there are m- the more traditional, like, meant-to-be-scary Stuff and the um, I'll tell you, I, I got to tell you about this. When I uh, was in fourth grade, I guess it was 1979 or something. There was this miniseries called Salem's Lot. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, based on the Stephen King novel about a small town that gets overrun by vampires. Okay, so at the end of this first episode, there's this little kid who di- he dies. I don't remember how he dies, but they bury him. But he's actually you know he's been bitten by a vampire and he comes out of the coffin. At night, and he goes to visit his best friend. His best friend is asleep. He's in his bedroom. For some reason, his bedroom has this gigantic, gothic-looking picture window like you'd see in Dracula's castle, I'm sure, the better to set up this scare sequence. But you see a sh- the kid's asleep. There's a shot of the window. It's a clear night, and all of a sudden, fog just rolls in. It just rolls in, and it's complete. There's so much fog, it looks like a, like a tank filled with smoke, you know? And then out of the fog comes the, the, the boy, and he's floating in. He's wearing a nightgown. He's wearing a dressing gown, like an old wee willy winky dressing gown. <laughs> and he's on wires. He's obviously on wires, but he's floating in and he's got pasty white makeup on. And he's, you know, he looks like a little dead boy. And he floats up to the window and he stops. And then he reaches up his hand and he goes, scratches on the window and he goes, open the window, Mark. Open the window. Open the window, Mark. Open the window, Mark. Please. Let me in. It's okay, Mark. I'm your friend. And I had this group of friends who would watch stuff, and we would meet on the playground at recess. And, like, the first thing we would talk about was what cool thing we watched on TV that we weren't supposed to see. And, we, you know, like, and usually we were very cavalier about it. But the morning after this episode aired, we were all standing around the playground, basically with our hands in our pockets, staring at our shoes. <laughs> and finally, one of, them said, one of them said, like, did you guys watch Salem's Lot last night? And he barely finished the sentence. We're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
And we eventually got over our trauma, but like open the window, Mark entered the lexicon of things we would say to each other. Like, you know, there was always a point during a sleepover where everybody else is starting to fall asleep and some Weisenheimer would go, <laughs> open the window, Mark. And everybody else would go, shut up, <laughs> shut up. Yeah, another one for me, and I guess this isn't really a TV show, but it was a TV event, um, was Michael Jackson's Thriller video. Yeah. Which uh, my parents would not allow us to have MTV because they thought I would just watch it all day and not do my homework. And they were right. Which is correct. (laughs) So I just did that when we went to the beach, and I would just not leave the house and just, you know, ruin a whole vacation. But but so it, it debuted on MTV, but then they debuted on the show called Friday Night Videos that they used to, where they would show music videos every Friday night. But it was on really late at night. It was on like 1230. And and I had just, I was just starting to come out of my trauma that had been inflicted upon me by seeing Poltergeist the year before. Oh my God. I mean, I really didn't go to sleep before the sun came up for like two months. That, sh- that movie's like one-stop shopping for childhood fear. Yeah. It's like it, everything is every, in that. Everything, yeah, exactly. Um, so I was a little afraid to watch it. My parents were like, we're going to watch it first and then we'll tell you. So... My first experience of that video was lying in my bed, hearing hearing it through the wall, hearing my parents watching it and, and imagining what it was going to be just based on what I was hearing. Ooh. And I was like, damn it, it sounds cool. I'm missing it. And it also sounds scary. And I'm not sure. <laughs> and so when I saw it, I think the first time I was scared, but I got over it pretty quickly because like within maybe two weeks, I was like learning the dance routine and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me video footage exists of you doing these. Um, no, not of that. I have video footage of me doing lots of dance routines, not that particular one. Um but yeah, it, was, it, it felt like it was scarier to hear it than it was to actually see it. Because I was imagining, if you remember that video and the, him turning into the werewolf and the screams and stuff, was, mm-hmm. I, I think I imagined stuff that was actually worse than what it ended up being. Did you guys watch much Unsolved Mysteries? Oh, I, sure. There's, A little bit. I never really watched it much, but then I watched like, you know, the, obviously when I watched it once, it stuck with me forever. And I again, I have a vague memory, but it was one where this woman was on a plane and there was a plane crash and she, they do these reenactments and like she saw this like ghost flight attendant, attendant whisper that there was going to be a crash. Mm. And then like, I I don't, she obviously survived it, but like it was just that image of this ghost flight attendant. (laughs) And now anytime I'm on a plane and there's something scary, (laughs) but like it feels like something bad is going to happen. It always takes me back to that moment. (laughs) Okay. Here's another one. Um, I first saw The Exorcist on network television, completely edited. I mean, they took out a lot of the worst stuff, but they left in a lot. I mean, in retrospect, I'm surprised that they could even show that movie at all on TV, considering yeah. the kind of stuff that happens. But even notwithstanding the fact that they cut out, you know, some of the most notorious kind of X-rated, disgusting stuff, they still had, you know, her puking on the on the priest and, you know, the medical test sequence and the scene where she walks into the room and her mom says, what's wrong, sweetie? And she pees on the rug and stares blankly ahead. And, you know, like mm-hmm. all that stuff is very, very creepy, but it was the voice. It was the voices. Yeah. And you're talking about the sound, like hearing Thriller in the next room. It was the sound in The Exorcist that scared me the most. And particularly in the scariest scene in the entire movie is when the priest is in his little, like, I guess it's some kind of a basement uh, office or workshop or whatever. And he has a reel-to-reel tape recorder. And he turns it on, and you hear the recordings of the demon voices. It's like, (laughs) and he's just sitting there listening to it. Like, that was the single scariest thing. Like, much more so than the little girl, you know, saying these 
you know, dubbed, weirdly dubbed for ABC. It's like, your mother sews socks in hell. <laughs> it's like, that's really, that's a curse, really? You know? <laughs> I think so many people were exposed to that movie at a young age because it was shown on network television. Like, I know one of my friends... The babysitter was like, hey, let's watch this. And uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. that was good. exactly what happened to me. It was exactly what <laughs> happened babysitter. to me. There was a babysitter over and she said and she, you know, didn't want to actually interact with us. She's just like, why don't you just go watch some TV? And she's like, oh, the exorcist is on. <laughs> the exorcist is on. There like, should be some sort like, of a test. Uh, yeah. It's like it's like, you know, like it's like, you know, the six million dollar man or rescue from Gillian's Island or something basically harmless. Right. But yeah, no. <laughs> In terms of more recent stuff, um, the I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but music on certain shows really freaks me the fuck out. Like yeah. Lost. Watching that alone at night mm-hmm. is never a good idea for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And uh, the... Black Mirror, uh, White Bear episode is probably up there in terms of things that has made me physically ill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have, there, have there been more recent, you know, TV ex- watching experiences that have scared you in adulthood? Yeah. Um, there were there were a number of sequences on Hannibal. Oh my God! That yes, sca- that same. scared me, Red and it Dragon. wasn't and it wasn't a jump scare sort of thing like where you know something suddenly happens that you don't expect it to it was more just creepiness mm-hmm. it was creepiness and it was and it was that um feeling of not knowing what's actually happening in a scene like that uncertainty and i find that as an adult i that's what scares me more mm-hmm. in television and movies it's not like vampires and werewolves and zombies and things like that or like a threat of physical jeopardy it's more like some more real world evil, you know, right? Like that's 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 what's scarier to me. So a show like Hannibal is frightening, but there are you know there are many more movies and television shows about evil behavior that could actually happen. That I you know I appreciate the artistry, but I don't particularly have any desire to ever watch that again. Mm-hmm. You know, and right. like you know there are some episodes of Game of Thrones and The Americans and a number of other series that have extreme violence and brutality that I'm like, okay, I saw it. I've made a mental note that that happened, but I don't want to see that again. Right. And I will skip over it. And it's not like, you know, you say so, you say this kind of thing online and you always get, it's always a dude going like, well, if you can't handle it, don't watch it. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's not that. It's just like, I don't want to, you know, I'll expose myself to a kind of an emotional toxin because that's my job to do it. But I don't feel like I should do a whole lot of repeat visits. Right. That's just my feeling. Right. Yeah, I mean, for recent stuff, uh, I mean, I think the best season of American Horror Story is still the first season, and that was the one that I found most creepy, just every time they went into the basement. Yes. I was like, uh, I mean, even the opening, opening titles um, for that show and that season in particular were just really, really creepy. I think the uh, the opening credits of that show are they consistently have promised a better show than the one that you get. <laughs> I always true. want the show to be more like the opening credits, like just the whole vibe of it. And in fact, strangely, I think one of the reasons I like Hannibal so much is 
it 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 had that kind of feeling where it's like it's not connected to reality. It's more the whole thing is like one long nightmare or mm-hmm. or dream. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that kind of thing. Yeah, and this isn't recent, um, but I think we all agree, and I know our, our readers do because we put this question out to to them and started hearing back from them on Twitter that Bob from Twin Peaks is the scariest thing that's ever happened on television. Without a doubt. In fact, <laughs> I, I uh, you know, we did, uh, we've done a number of, you know, it's kind of a perennial Halloween thing, like scariest TV moments. And right. number one, this is a few years ago, was Bob climbing over that couch on Twin Peaks. And I said, you know, I wrote about the scariest things I've ever seen on television. And, you know, here's my number one. And I put a link to the video of Bob climbing over that couch. Mm -hmm. And one of the people who follows me on Twitter wrote back and he said, I'm not clicking on this because I know what it is. (laughs) And I said, what is it? And he said, it's Bob coming over the couch. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, also the Twin Peaks episode, it was the first first episode when they I guess of the second season. Um, which has Bob in it. It's it's um, at the very end where they're like going through that like train and you kind of and it's yes. like a montage. Yeah. That episode, first of all, was preempted in my market by a football game. Uh, Can you imagine all the Twin Peak fervor and you come back and it's like, I'm sorry, the Redskins are on, so you can't watch this until 1230 at night. That's a, that's a slap <laughs> so, in the face. So what, I was experiencing that for the first time at like one in the morning, one thirty in the morning. Oh, it was bad. It was bad, but also good. <laughs> Some other uh, Twitter responses we've gotten. Uh, Nicole Perkins, who's a TV critic who writes for Vulture, uh, said the Squeeze episode of The X-Files scared her so bad at first viewing she didn't try to watch the series again until 2014. (laughs) (laughs) I've had episodes of – there are images, particular images from episodes of The X-Files that have, have appeared in my dreams. Mm. That's one of them. Squeeze is one of them. Home. Is yeah, home. a lot of home people mentioned home. Yeah. Somebody tweeted to me and said she they showed that at her 13th birthday party and then no one went to the bathroom alone for the rest of the night. Which, you know. Yeah. And the <laughs> one with the, co- the one with the cockroaches. Mm-hmm. You remember the one? So, I can't remember the t- war of the uh, Corifarages or Corifa. I can't remember. I can't remember saying. either. Uh, anyway, the one with the big ass scary cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they should have called it. Like it was an episode of Friends. <laughs> the one with the big ass scary cockroaches. Uh, Twitter user at ab underscore obi said that episode of Rugrats when Tommy keeps cutting himself <laughs> and getting band aids, which I don't remember, yeah. but sounds. Terrible. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. Jesse David Fox in our office mentioned this. I guess it was like a, a TV movie or something called Alien Abduction Incident in Lake County. That was mm. like a. It was a found footage thing, and you and you watched it thinking it was real, but it actually wasn't. And I think it was on either like UPN or the CW. And uh, he said that he that's what happened. He thought it was real and he got completely freaked oh. out. And interestingly, it was it was in 1998. So it was a year before Blair Witch. So maybe Blair Witch owes it a little debt Ooh, there. Yeah, very possibly. There have been some individual moments on um, the strain mm. that I thought were quite unsettling. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not really a person who gets uh, easily shocked or cowed by you know, big scary monster with big scary teeth lunging at the camera. Like that's kind of like, and I'm like, whatever. You know, like it doesn't yeah. do it for me. But it's more often the implication of things that I find disturbing. And there are a number of there are a number of scenes on on the strain that are like that because you know, it's, I think it's more like the image of there's an image there's a moment where the chief henchman 
you see him and he looks like a normal person. He looks like a regular person. But there's an episode that begins with him putting on his face. He's putting on his hair. He's putting in his eyes. He's basically like a glorified human skull without all of these appliances. And he's getting, he's basically getting dressed as a plausible human being in the way that, you know, you or I would just put our clothes on and brush our teeth in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really stuck with me. That, and it's the ordinariness of it that makes it frightening, the idea that this is what he does every morning when he gets up, is he puts on his people outfit, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's super disturbing, Matt. (laughs) 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 We'd also love to hear your stories. You can email us at tvquestions at vulture.com to share the moments that terrified you. High Maintenance, the critically acclaimed web series turned HBO show, tells vignettes about humans in New York, using a weed dealer as the means by which we enter these people's homes and lives. The series wrapped its six-episode season on HBO last Friday, and we're very excited to have High Maintenance co-creators Ben Sinclair and Katya Blickfeld with us here today in studio. Ben and Katya, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for so having nice us. So nice to have you here. It's great to see you again. Likewise. Yeah. Third time now in the past month. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So you've done your, your first HBO season. And I'm curious how, when you were starting out, how you decided what mix of stories you wanted to tell. And you know, you have a very interesting mix. You have a story about a Muslim girl. You have a raver dad. Were you thinking very consciously about what do we cut, what do we keep to have like a season that feels different and like you're not telling the same type of story in different ways. Yeah, we definitely wanted to make sure that we brought back a handful of our characters from from the past episodes. We thought it would be something that a lot of our fans would be hoping for. It's something we we wanted to revisit some of those people and because some of those episodes we shot like four years ago. And so I didn't know I didn't know that. Yeah, like our very first episode we shot in 2011. Wow. Yeah, and we didn't do anything with it for a year, but, I mean, that's how long it's been. So some of those characters we'd been living with for a long time and had, throughout the years, talked about, like, ooh, what could their fate be? And so that was obviously, you know, the obvious opportunity to jump into that. But then we also thought it would be important to get some new characters in there. So we kind of did it 50-50, I think. We did, right? Yeah, we yeah. did. The way we the stories come together is we're kind of like just going about our days in the city and we'll be together or we'll be alone, but we'll report on someone or something we saw and then we'll just kind of write that down on a note card and we'll just kind of put it in this big pile of ideas that we've just been kind of batting around over the years and it feels kind of like we're molding something or sculpting like the season it felt like we were like well we'll put all of these things and we'll shake it up and see what sticks it's really an organic process and there is no real method to it that you could describe it's just like so loose and Mm -hmm. but this but this time access to this was the first time we've had the opportunity to plan for a bunch of episodes at once Mm -hmm. we never had to consider Mm -hmm. an arc of a season or something like that because we were always just Mm -hmm. doing these as one-offs kind of whenever the mood struck us so that was kind of a that that was new for us to sort of have to look at a big picture and be like, 
is there some redundancy here? Are there too many men, too many women? Is there too mm-hmm. much feminine energy, too much masculine energy? It's just, you know, this is too straight. I don't know. We we were definitely trying to seek some sort of a balance somewhere. And, and we love opposites in general. Mm-hmm. Like when we would make a story, for instance, episode two, Musibat, we were trying to create a kind of a pull between two lifestyles uh, and put them right next to each other. And I think a lot of our work does that, is put like two very different things right next to each other so you can see the compare and contrast of those personalities. How strong is the kind of cultural anthropology instinct in your work? Pretty, pretty intense, yeah. yeah. We, especially you, Katya, like you are more drawn to things like tumbling. For a while you were like really into like Tumblr and... Now you're kind of doing a lot of Instagramming, and you're really more into the the trends and the pulse than I am. I'm really into, like, structural stru- things having to do with story structure and, like, just weirdos and wacko. We're both into weirdos. Yeah, actually. we're both into but, weirdos. Yeah. But, yeah, I am really interested in, like, what are the what are the kids talking about right now? Not Not necessarily – that's not something that we portray, but – I'm interested. Like, I'm interested in what pe- groups that I'm not a part of are talking about. Did that influence episodes like Selfie and I think and, so. Yeah, you know, the digital technology. Definitely. Oh yeah. Into it, oh yeah. But everyone can. Yeah. Grab onto that <laughs> For one. For sure. sure. Yeah. I noticed on your Instagram recently you had posted an ad for a morning rave, yes. which is in uh, the episode with the what is the name of this episode? Tick. Tick. Yes. Yeah. Where the father goes to a, a morning rave, I had no idea it was a real oh, thing yeah. in New York. I might go with him next time. To the, a day rave? Yeah. Cool. As long as you can watch Jane. Yep. Great. I'm so glad you can't. We're going to have a fabulous time. No one's going like, to make me dance with them, right? I can just dance uh-huh. by myself. You just do you cookie. Everything's going to be great. Oh, wow. Gabby Hoffman. Who? Right there, Gabby Hoffman. You know who she oh, is. That, wait, that's Gabby. Hey, I know her. Gabby! We started hearing about uh, sober raves, some people call them, morning parties, other people call them. And there is a few. There's not just the one. The one that we uh, filmed and the one that Ben's talking about is called Shine On. Mm -hmm. But there are so many other ones like Morning Glory, Daybreaker. um, Those are the two that come to mind. But I know there are more. There's like a night one called The Get Down. They're just sober sober dance parties. Dance parties. And they definitely are a lot of people who go to Burning Man. There's there's that vibe going on. <laughs> a lot of that. But but others too, which was that's not what drew me to it, but it's what kept me around. I was we were drawn to go to them because we just kept running into people who had who knew someone who had gone to one or they themselves had been to one and we were just like, let's we have to check this out. Do you, do you remember when we went to Five Rhythms? And uh, well we, I think we went to that first. Yeah, we went to Five Rhythms, which five is no, like what a is five rhythms? dance meditation kind of huh. group where yeah. it's like they you just dance for two hours and there are five musical rhythms they alternate between and you have like a leader who's kind of trying to get you to not just do repetitive dance moves but to like move in a way that you aren't expecting somehow. I think that's what it is. And we it? saw this older dude who was like Not even 70. just one. I mean, there was a few. Was oh, like but a, I know who you're talking about. There was like about. this 73-year-old dude who had his 
who was just dancing kind of like very limp and he was like really into it. And there were all these like very young women dancing all over yes, him. Yes, very and young, nubile women doing some, <laughs> some sort of very slow mirror dancing with him. Yeah, and this It was got, fascinating. And it was, re- I think that was one of the roots for that episode. Well, yeah, because we're like, who's that guy? Who Does the he hell have kids? Is that and, guy? Yeah. You know, what's his deal? Yeah. Uh, so th- I think that was the impetus for that. But then we found out about all these other parties and checked them out. And, and then we were like, no, this is actually way more visually interesting because at Five Rhythms, it was just people sort of in their like workout clothes mm-hmm. looking like they were going to a yoga class. But at, at these dance parties, people really were getting into like full costume and wigs and glitter and like really some interesting stuff. Remember like Tosh coming as like sexy weird Al. Yeah. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but like yeah. Isn't that a redundancy though? <laughs> yeah. Then we were having yeah. we were having lunch in our last day in uh, Oh Dimas the last Park, day we lived in Dimas Park. And we sat down across from it, this woman who uh, had recognized me from the web series and she said that she puts together these day rays. Oh, that's right. And that is how we got connected wow. with her, was yeah. just running into her on the street, even though we had already gone to Five Rhythms and mm-hmm. other It's It's like fascinating that. to hear you describe this because it sounds like, I feel like I'm listening to journalists. It used to be that almost any major newspaper had, a, had a, one place for what we used to call pure reporting, where there's no news hook. Like Ben Hecht, uh, 1001 Afternoons in Chicago is probably the best you know, most famous example of this, where he would just talk to a bus driver and tell his life story. And the challenge was always, how do we tell this guy's life story in 750 words or however mm-hmm. many he had? Yeah. Or he would, you know, be at a laundromat and he would talk to some woman whose ma- marriage had just fallen apart. And, and he would tell, ha- and it would basically be just a portrait of this woman talking about her marriage. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Wow, I gotta look Ben hecked up. We yeah, like I mean, the metro section yeah. definitely. We go definitely. To the metro <laughs> section when we get the Sunday paper. Do you read the crime blotter? Sometimes. Sometimes we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're definitely looking for the banalities behind the headlines. Like we're really drawn to the banal mm-hmm. and like what seems very unique to one person's life, but is actually very relatable to everybody. Or just like what seems really weird to an outsider, but is just that person's everyday yes. reality and. It's kind of mundane for them. I'm guessing y'all are Robert Altman fans. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you guys to talk about some of your influences because I'd read an interview you did um, a few years ago where you talked about how you were influenced by Six Feet Under, but specifically like the first few minutes of each episode, mm-hmm. which is a mini story about somebody <laughs> yeah. you know, biting the bullet. Um, can you talk more about that and, and other things that influenced you? Yeah, I mean, def- Six Feet Under, th- and for anyone who has not watched Six Feet Under, you should watch it, or I should, won't tell you what to do, but it's really good. <laughs> it's, it's our favorite drama ever. The first few minutes of every Six Feet Under episode is uh, you're dropped into someone's life, and they're not a series regular. They're not a character you've seen on the show before. And after you've seen a few episodes, you know that inevitably they will meet their demise within a minute and a half, probably, or two minutes. And then, you know, we move on. And they end up being, they're the ones who end up being embalmed by the caretaker, the, uh, what do you call it? By Uh, the family at the the Undertakers, right. Right. So, at the Fisher family, I guess. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that was, I don't know, we really thought that was cool. It was also in 2010 when, and 11 when we were thinking about this when there was just so much short videos on the internet happening and there was a lot of people trying to crack the viral video. It felt code. like it had, had reached I mean? a saturation point or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. so everyone was trying to make these two-minute, usually just funny things. Um, and we were just more interested in the depth that the length of the Six Feet Under 
intros were able to capture just with a cup, just pictures, really. A lot of times the the person wouldn't even talk. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we also thought, what, or we were asking ourselves, why can't a short internet video be cinematic, or why does it have to be humor based? Why why couldn't it be dramatic, or mm-hmm. you know, or none of the above? But influence wise, I mean, I always say the Danish filmmakers that were really kicking in the '90s, like Lars von Trier, the Dogma '95, yeah, mm-hmm. completely. Yeah. Like to me, that's. That's what got me interested in film. That's what interesting. I mean, I, I, the celebration is my favorite film of all. That's time. A, you know, the, just to give listeners a context for this, this was a movement of these Northern European filmmakers who decided that the way that movies were being made, commercial movies were being made, was fundamentally corrupt. I mean, it sounds like a Marxist word to use, but and they and you had to sign this pledge, and I can't remember what all was on the pledge, but it was like you can only shoot on Super 16 or video. Mm-hmm. You can't have any. Um, they don't you, want artifice. They so, don't want artifice. Like if someone's pregnant, they want them to be pregnant. They want them to be pregnant, and also like <laughs> the, the, the rules: natural light, um, available Diagetic. locations Diagetic only. Music. You're not you're not allowed to write. Yeah, there can be music if it's coming out of a visible on-screen source, mm-hmm. but you can't have a score. Right. Right. That and was free part of from it. genre. They did. They didn't want anything to be easily. Uh, classified as a as a specific genre, so like the celebration was the first one that they made, and it's it's a pretty dark dark film, but there's a lot of humor in it. I mean, and it is a drama, mm. but there's just so much levity, and I don't know. I guess that is a genre. It is a drama film, but I think they were. It is. See, but that's what's funny about that whole movement was they all signed this pledge and they immediately began carving out exemptions for <laughs> yeah, themselves totally. and violating it. But <laughs> yeah. I feel like the spirit of the exercise is what's really important. It is. It's what's important, and it definitely influenced me and YouTube. And I mean, that, oh, yeah. that's the sort of that's what we respond to naturalism. Yeah, I think actually, I, it, this is just such a like pretentious one but Chekhov I was so oh, yeah. into Chekhov you love in college Chekhov. I was obsessed with Chekhov in college and I went to Russia to study at the theater that Chekhov did most of his works at the Moscow Art Theater and I like went to his grave expecting to feel something and felt nothing and then I was like <laughs> I was like that's exactly the kind of Chekhovian moment I was looking for <laughs> then, uh, there was I I think looking back on that I didn't enjoy my experience in Russia, but I, I look back on that as really some of the most formative times of what I was interested in terms of tone and just s- storytelling. Just noticing that the small moments are usually more intense than the large plot moments. You were talking about you know naturalism in in the work you do, and I've read you talking about auditions and how... You like for it to feel natural. You don't like to have people reading lines that you've written necessarily because it can feel kind of stilted. Mm-hmm. How exactly does your process work in terms of bringing this naturalism to, to these people's roles? I think we try to imbue our actors with self-worth before they start working with us and let them know that we invited them there because this part was for them and that we try to make them feel very comfortable in that they are the character be- and that's why we thought of them for this character. So you don't do auditions? We no, didn't used we, to ever. We, we've done some. We didn't do any for the web series. And then I think the only ones we did auditions for was we had an episode called Genghis where we had to cast kids who seemed like they were in high school. And so for that one, we did read people. <laughs> um, but for this current season, we started off with our casting director holding regular auditions. You okay, Ben? 
Choking on a LaCroix over Choking here. on some white wine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We, yeah, we started, uh, Christine Cromer, our, our casting director, started the season putting people on tape, the, you know, in the usual fashion, reading reading our script, reading the sides. And it just was so weird for us because we had never done that before with our show. And it, we started doubting our writing. Yeah, it was just weird. I don't know. And we just, it was sort of like it wasn't broken the way we were doing it before. So, like, why are we doing it a different way now? And I understand. I mean, now we had, we've sort of used all of our friends in the show so yeah we have to sort of, I understand the So do you come up with a character and then say who do we know I mean I'm not talking about season two but season mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. who do we know who would be good for this part or are you basing characters on people you already know who are actually It depends on what shows up first Yeah Right whether we have an idea for a character or a situation or we just want to work with an actor, it depends on how highly we feel about any one of those components that we tackle at first, you know? Are there any characters who have appeared on season one of the show who are played by non-professional actors? Yes. Oh, yeah. And who are they? Uh, our niece, Kate, who is in an episode called Matilda, oh, where the story is that the guy's niece comes to visit. That is our real niece. She's not an actress. You know, what's funny is uh, a lot, after this dog episode, everyone's like, that dog is such a good actor. And I'm just like, I, guess what? I love that dog. Guys, hey, he's I, ca- I compared that dog to Nick Nolte, and I wasn't joking. I was not it's, joking. It's just so funny, man, because, like, dogs don't act, which oh, in itself is a soulful. Zen Cohen for all actors Yeah, but your, D- your DP is, seemed to think that he was making choices. Yeah. It started to feel that way. It started Come to on. feel that way, but in general, I don't think dogs are <laughs> actors, and this dog was motivated solely by food. <laughs> <laughs> And, and but what actor is not? Yeah, yeah right. Like, well, I definitely am. Uh, but it, it's just so funny. Like that dog was such a good actor because that dog wasn't like thinking about the acting. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I got. Okay, I got to disagree. I got to disagree with you, Dan. The reason I disagree with you is that not only not only your DP talking about how that dog was making choices. I actually said, you know, did the dog ever go off script, and if so, did you use the improvisation? She's like, yeah. <laughs> but true. but also because I just recently did uh, 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 an oral history of the John Carpenter movie The Thing oh. with my friend Simon Abrams, who writes for Vulture sometimes, and John Carpenter said that he thought the dog at the beginning of The Thing was giving a real performance. You know, I mean, like I, like in the way that he said, like the spooky, <laughs> the spooky, spooky stillness of this dog was not characteristic of the dog normally. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I wonder if like I'm not saying that like you're you know. I, I don't want to be misconstrued here. I'm saying, like, I wonder if animals whose intelligence is slightly less than humans don't also enjoy being able to play people other than who they are. Oh, um, no, I, this dog loved attention. And this dog was exemplary for his love of, of people. And he grew up, uh, like, knocking over kids in, like, a Utah household, you know. And, and then they, like, had to get him out of that household. So he was always in a loving environment. And he really liked people. Uh, did he understand the nuances of the the plot we hey, were trying to tell? you know what? I will, it's hard to say. I will God. say. <laughs> I will say this. He loved. He loved Yael Stone. He did love. He Yael really Stone. did. And I mean, part of it's because the rest of us were like, "Don't touch the. Do- we can't touch the dog. Don't touch the dog." And so she was largely, you also, know, interacting with him. A and she had a lot of treats in, in her, her bag. Pocket, <laughs> guys. Like there was a lot. On, of it's a lot of tricks, trickery guys. going on. And also the improvisation <laughs> that I did listen to the podcast, and when I heard Dalmar talk about the improvisation. There was like, 
it it could be called improvisation, but I think I know the moment she's talking about, and it was just like the dog, like if you run the sound, you can hear like the trainers being like, ah, uh-uh, stay. You're ruining my fantasy did, of the dog listen, in the trailer the dog, and a turtleneck smoking a cigarette and the, calling his agent. The dog <laughs> didn't go through level one at UCB. The dog, <laughs> the dog was, <laughs> the dog was not a barista to make, uh, to make rent. <laughs> hey, we don't know what happened in Salt Lake City. Yeah, the dog's Lake. in the standby line yeah. for Hamilton. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, let me ask you this about the dog. <laughs> when you guys started writing that, was there any moment where you're like, this is going to be really hard to actually pull off? Should we not do this? Yeah, I mean, of course. We've never done it before. We've never worked with a dog, so we didn't really know how achievable it would be. Or or we knew it would be achievable. We didn't know how hard it would be to achieve. I think yeah. once we figured out what we call the Muppet Babies convention yeah. of just not having to see the faces of the actors, we knew that we would get the takes way faster because mm-hmm. we wouldn't have to account mm-hmm. for the actor's performance. Right. We could just solely concentrate on the dog's performance. That was right. interesting. You can, yeah, and we could ADR in actor performance. Performance, so that mm-hmm. you know that would well, you know that, that that was one of the most interesting visual choices in that episode because it you know for me it was like what does a dog pay attention to? It never occurred to me before I watched that episode, but you know a dog probably tells more about what a human wants by looking at their hands and their feet than they do from looking at their face. I wanted to talk a little bit about episode four. Take, mm-hmm. um, I mean, first of all, the dad's performance just re- like the, when he says. I'm a person. It's just it like the tears. Time, yeah. 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 Uh, I heard a lot during that episode. amazing moment. Voice catches. Yeah. Peter. Uh. Dad, do we have to be the only adults in the house? Are you going to be our other child that we yeah, have sorry, to worry about? Sorry. What Dean said to the guy, it was an accident. Yeah, well, the weak guy's not helping us raise our child. You are. And I know you don't have a lot of experience raising children, but it's more than just showing up and buying things. You have to actually be present and sober. Okay? Not act like some unemployed 20-year-old raver. The fuck, Quinn? Don't put me on blast like that. <laughs> Stop making fun of me. I'm a person. I'm not just that. I'm a person, too, and I have feelings. Yeah, well, now the house is filled with toxic fumes. Well, then you can all sleep down here if you like. I don't care. Yeah. And he's a wonderful actor. He He's really, a really, really Peter wonderful. Friedman, yeah. And then you see technology bring him and his daughter back together in this way, and that's like, really sweet moment and then in the, the next episode selfie you see the flip side of technology oh, where I didn't even realize that oh, well yeah. I was curious how much you're thinking about these themes as you're going through like showing kind of the nuances to something like that well I would say that showing technology on TV is one of those things we're always talking about and being like you cannot ignore the fact that people use technology primarily as the communicator with most of the people in their lives. And I've heard showrunners talk about how texting isn't cinematic and all this. And I'm like, not the way you're thinking about it, but certainly it can be. We're texting graphics yeah. and things mm-hmm. back and forth, and we're still talking with one another. And, and and it even makes the acting smaller when the people are having the lines, so it makes better – I think it makes better there acting. There was a moment on the show, I feel like maybe it was Mr. Robot, where a character was communicating with another character and asked them a question. And you saw the little window open up where they typed it, and they sent their message. And then you saw that other window open with the ellipse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ellipsis. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And staring at that ellipsis is something everybody who texts in that moment where it's like, 
What are they going to say? And then there's a moment where the ellipsis disappears. I know. Yeah. And you're like, oh no. Oh no. Yeah. Oh, no. oh no. I know. <laughs> right. And then like when it comes back, will it be will it be um, more painful or more reassuring than what I imagined? Right. You oh know? god, I'm and, very familiar with and that. And the feeling. way people type, you can see their thought process happening and what they delete and what they choose to show. Mm-hmm. Like there's all it's a, Yeah, that, that was a moment in in that episode Tick where she kind of deletes something she's going to say. Yeah, she was going to apologize. Else. She doesn't. <laughs> well, she was well, also she was making to... fun of him when she apologized yeah. by saying, sorry, I put you on yeah. blast. Yeah, and we... she was just trying to follow the conversation, Yeah, it give was... it some closure. Yeah. But, I mean, to your question, I think when we write isolated episodes, or sh- I sh- actually I should say stories, because we do write the stories and then they get pieced together into episodes. And they weren't all, like what you see on the air in that order, those stories grouped together, those were not necessarily all ordered in that fashion or Mm. grouped in that fashion. That was something that was sorted out after we had completed writing all of the You mean what what was sorted out was the order of the episode? So the first episode... That, but also, yeah. Like, the the first episode with Johnny, the the buff guy, and then Max, that was... Max was supposed to be a fifth standalone episode. And Johnny was supposed to accompany the episodes that are airing this week. Oh, Mm -hmm. wow. It was like a trio. We were like, oh, let's do like an old school high maintenance cycle. And that was supposed to come second. And Tick was supposed to be the first episode. What made you change it? Well, we were like, if we come out of the gate with that episode, Tick, the and it's a full half hour. It's it's one complete. It's like a short, almost it's like a short film. It's and it's a couple of stories, but they're interwoven in a way that kind of makes it one. And then we don't have any other ones like that. So we sort of felt weird about putting it first and having people come to our show maybe for the first time and then thinking like, oh, that's what it is. Because I don't know. We didn't think it was representative. We do of, short stories. Yeah, we do short stories. And while that is a short story, it's not as short as mm-hmm. some of the other ones we did. And then I think after we'd completed that Johnny story, after shooting it, it felt so much like one of those classic one, I don't know, I'm calling them classic, the ones we did in the beginning. It felt like mm-hmm. similar format, similar pacing, mm-hmm. kind of similar convention of like being in one apartment, real time, mm-hmm. that sort of a thing. So we were like, wouldn't that be fitting to put that first? And then we realized iteration? it was about masculinity and being mm-hmm. an imposter. And we we're like, oh, that has yeah. the same themes as the other or one some with of Max. Them. Yeah. And so we thought that, that you know, these the, the whole thing is... is up for grabs until we deliver to HBO, really. It's just the editing process is because we write and direct and edit, have a pop process in it. We don't have to ask anyone's permission to change anything. Yeah. Uh, right. And we're nice. able to make decisions very... Are you not getting notes? We are getting some notes, but uh, minimal. delightfully minimal wow, notes. Wow, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. And pretty much because we asked for them. They're, they've been very... I mean, I guess they offered some unsolicited, but very few. They've been very much just supportive of what we're doing and not questioning too much so because we can make these sweeping changes i hope that when we work with directors and writers in the future because we will that they feel as loose as we have felt mm-hmm. in making this and that's the real jump uh, so do you do okay. not plan to direct we, every episode again we just won't be able to it's, it yeah. was yeah. a real it's a it was a lot of energy to do all that Uh, It was like 11 short stories, and it took about a year to do. So it was like one short story a month. There were times when I just wished I could have just put on my writer's hat for an episode and worried about dialogue that maybe wasn't what I wanted it to be that time and and not had to worry about, like, the shots and all that. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And I'm sure the same for you, Ben. Like, there was just times when it would have been nice to have been able to, like, work from another vantage point. 
When we had talked before, you mentioned, you know, this season you mostly have two stories per episode, mm-hmm. about 15 mm-hmm. minutes, but that you wanted to, going forward, maybe do, make them shorter even. Yeah. Would, Hopefully some w- of them. Would yeah. that change your process in terms of... No, we'll no. go back to the original process of making really short internet yeah. pieces and just try to get them down to that length again. And, and what appeals to you about making it shorter? It's just fun to try it's to get... It's a fun challenge. It's mm-hmm. like, w- let's let's really use the concept a picture whereas use, is a thousand... <laughs> a picture's worth a thousand words and this show-don't-tell concept and let's just put as much information into a little amount as possible. That Yeah, and if you, if you are endeavoring to make it that short, you are forced to kill your darlings. Like, Mm-hmm. in a exponentially you know and that's great like that's a great restriction to have it occurs to me that we've been talking about this show in some detail and no one has yet mentioned marijuana yeah. <laughs> thank you matt thanks for bringing yeah. that up well no it's interesting it's interesting you know that's the entire sort of conceit of the show and the structure of the show I find it interesting that it hasn't come up yeah it's uh, something that is very much a part of our life and it is so much so that it's kind of just a part. It's as much of a part of our life as is coffee. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about coffee all day either. Yeah. Like, right. Mm-hmm. It's like. Right. Well, it doesn't feel necessarily crucial to the show in terms no. of what's actually. No, but it does. It is a hook of sorts. Yeah, sure. And it does. And it's provide. another fun, like, um, not constraint. But. That's what it, remind, what it reminded me of, again, to bring it back to Altman, is like Altman always had a device like that in his movies. Like he had the. Mm-hmm. Spraying for med flies and shortcuts, or he had the sound truck in Nashville that's moving from location to location, mm-hmm. or something. It's mm-hmm. like that's to me. That's just what gets us into the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And it's also great because it does orchestrate a very uh, conversational moment. People tend mm-hmm. to talk a lot when they smoke pot, or when uh, they're buying it, like either because they're it. nervous or, or not even nervous, but. It is yeah. a, it's a weird thing, I think, sometimes, even for people who order marijuana to be delivered on a regular basis. It is still a unique circumstance to have that person come into your space, have a seat on your couch or at your table or stand in your kitchen or what have yeah. you, and you're making this illegal transaction, and... <laughs> It's weird. You you and who, it is strange. And it's not it. yeah, and it's yeah. not like you can really schedule it a hundred percent and be like, so you'll be here at three thirty, right? right? Okay, yeah. see you then. Like <laughs> you know, it's going to be like on their terms. And you can't complain. Because you can't it's complain about that. What? Do you, yeah, you can't be like, I'd like to speak to your manager. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, there's nothing like that. So it's like it's a pretty weird circumstance. And and I always say too, like you're not you're not usually cleaning up for your weed dealer. I am sometimes, I'll confess, but like most people, I think, based on the stories I've heard from people we know who deliver feels weed, totally like, anonymous. yeah, they're coming into people's lives at like weird times. Well, this is going to sound probably really weird, but it made me think of the convention that you used to see on television all the time, particularly in shows that were set in small towns. And in a way, I feel like this show also is. Spoon of the uh, of the well, I was going to say of the the priest or the minister who is paying a visit. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, sure. You know, like it used to be, that was a great way to connect one subplot in a show to another was by having the minister stop in. Is that what the Vicar of Dibley is about? <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. Sounds know. like a Doctor Quinn Medicine Woman oh, situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean. Well, we asked a weed dealer the other day, like, what are people saying to you as soon as you get in there? They, and they basically say, like, 
I'm a this kind of person who does this and this. Can you recommend something for me? So they're giving you a little biography of themselves in order to diagnose you with something mm-hmm. so, uh, or to, uh, and to give you a, a cure for whatever ails you or whatever. So it is kind of like Dr. Quinn mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. That's probably our main source of inspiration. Totally. Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. <laughs> I now love that. that. I'm about it, we should probably Jane say Seymour, that. if you're listening. Yeah. Six feet under and Dr. Quinn. <laughs> yeah. And Chuck. Uh, I like the idea of a, of a weed dealer on the prairie in the 1890s. <laughs> pitch it. Somebody will pick that right up. Yeah. <laughs> if we could get a hologram of Michael Landon. <laughs> that would be awesome. I love oh Michael God. Landon. I love his brows. Uh, Did he, he had very good eyebrows. Yeah. Yeah. Good hair. Good I was going to say great hair. hair. Yeah. Great He's hair. a real mane. Yeah. So, th- I mean, your character, for this reason, doesn't usually get a story. Mm-hmm. And in the finale this this season, we do get a bit of that, which was g- great to see as a viewer. But I'm curious if you debated that at all. If you were, if it made you nervous to bring him too, mu- make him too much of a a person that you. It's a delight to tease yeah. him. It's a, yeah, it's a delight and to a relief tease. always yeah. to like, oh, we gotta, we have something we can reveal. Sometimes people are like, we would like to see more of him. And the fact that you are thinking that is such a great thing to us. It's so much better than I'm sick of this guy. Like that Chekhov thing of making such a big deal out of such a little detail of his life. You know what I mean? But that's because the only information you get about the guy is these little bits that we dole out. And it feels much more of like, <gasps> than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Like his actual situation. I don't want to ruin it for the listeners. But his actual situation is kind of interesting, but not not. Really, that interesting. Right. If someone but when you know nothing, party. it's just like any little kernel. Is, yeah, it's like oh, mm, so it takes horribly. a lot. Of, yeah, it takes a lot of pressure off us to make it interesting. And also, we've always said and continue to say that what you think about him is kind of the point. He's a surrogate. He's a he's whatever you want him to be. And he's and a lot of people are projecting this shamanistic Buddha like aura onto him. And I guess I don't think he's that <laughs> chill. I think he. He's, uh, well, not anymore. I think this season, I don't know if anyone else really has noticed this. A couple people maybe have said it, but it, this season he's a lot less chill. And he and I think the guy says no a lot more this season and gets frustrated a lot more. And He's feeling the grind. Yeah, he's season. now it's like mm-hmm. now it feels like a real job for him. Like he it, used to it used to be a little more fun. And now he's like, ugh, this sucks. I, I was reminded of. Um, I interviewed David Milch for the first time like a long time ago, and I was talking about the use of intoxicants on Deadwood and how so many of the characters on Deadwood were, you know, they took laudanum, they, they mm-hmm. used morphine, they drank a lot, whatever. They all, Everybody had something. And, uh, of course, he was a, a, you know, a drug addict at one point, and he said there are certain situations in life where intoxicants are not only permissible but necessary. And I think about that every time I watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I talked a lot about that this week with my friends on our glamping trip. Yeah. We just, I mean, everybody has something. Well, what's interesting about people taking a substance, taking a mind-altering thing, trying to escape something, is it is about vulnerability and people's inability to feel vulnerable, which is why they dull. Or to feel okay with being vulnerable. Yeah. To give themselves permission. Yeah, yes. to give themselves permission. Yeah, and it dulls everything a little bit. And it, some, it dulls the bad feelings, but it also dulls the good feelings too. And, it, mm. and that is kind of just this kind of cycle that a lot of people are on where they're just like – 
uh, feeling bad because they don't feel happy, then taking something, and then feeling nothing for a while, and then feeling bad that they don't feel happy, and just just keep on doing that cycle over and over again. So it's it's definitely serial. You can serialize that shit. It's like it's just like coming back over and over to the same things that we all struggle with every day. Our show is, I think, a little bit lighter than that. But underneath all of it is a lot of isolation and a lot of people just trying to deal with their own vulnerability of being in this city, which is like a total bitch. And like, and these people are just trying to numb. Well, I I feel like Patrick is the character that most I I feel the most deeply for. We should describe him. Yeah. Can Can you guys attempt to describe him? Yeah, Patrick is a mm, pretty much agoraphobic man in his 30s who for a long time lived with his sick mother in kind of like a rent-controlled apartment situation and then she passes and then he is now left alone and he's really alone now and he is one of the guy's customers he doesn't he we learn in the the first episode that we meet him in which is called Helen uh, from a few years ago that he calls the guy for company he's not himself a weed smoker mm-hmm. but he has been using the this excuse that his sick mother is smoking this pot. Right. So, and then that's why, and he's calling the guy because he kind of has a little crush on him and he enjoys his company and the guy is very kind and generous with him, with his time and his attitude and always eats these like baked goods that, that Patrick makes for him. And yeah, he's kind of, and he's very emotional and he's obsessed with Helen Hunt. Yeah, that was my question. Helen, why Helen, not... Not to disparage Helen Hunt. I, I like Helen Hunt very much. But why did you choose Helen Hunt? I love how everyone says, not to disparage Helen Hunt. <laughs> well, what why? the fuck? <laughs> we, I mean, we have, no, we have we know someone who at one time was pretty into Helen Hunt. <laughs> he, was, uh, when, he was one of the first people I met when I went to college. And he was an RA. And he decked out the entire hall in Helen Hunt that he was the RA of. There was just two <laughs> pictures of Helen Hunt on everyone's door when they with their names by him. Uh, and I was like, what? is going on here. You told me that, and that, I was so tickled by that information. I'm mean, a great friend. Still, yeah. So. I mean, this thing is more of a journal than we probably care to admit, but it really yeah. is just our emotions and our feelings. on Insecurities. Some, and yeah, insecurities and everything with someone else's skin, uh, on someone else's skin. So it's kind of our exercise in being vulnerable. But that's awesome. And if we get to do that all the time for, like, years... Yeah, we would be some of the luckiest people. Yeah, because, like, in the end, it's just storytelling. I can't imagine a better way to pass the time than reflecting it back into the culture and seeing what happens. God damn it, is it so fun to walk around the city and be like, it's you. You're the person that I'm thinking about. Like, and then follow them for a little bit. And then, like, it's just a a long... a series of daydreaming like we're just daydreaming all day it seems like sometimes that's it for this week's vulture tv podcast don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 the vulture tv podcast is produced by sam dingman and jordan bell laura Mayer is our director of production and andy bowers is our chief content officer the Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening.